wonder. Turning your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 22 through 42. 22 through 42. And um, I've got a lot to say today. I was out last week, so I'm catching up. So this is not overtime. Uh, so I need you to listen fast. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 42. Men of Israel, and, and we're coming in the middle of Peter's sermon. That's where we've been. We're coming here. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, in verse 29, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. That he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you humbly submitting ourselves before you now. Submitting to you, submitting to your word. We bend the knee with expectation that you will call sinners to repentance and faith. That you are even today, even this morning, sanctifying your people through the work of your Holy Spirit. Applying your word to our hearts. We ask that you would work in us and through us, among us this morning. Accomplishing your will. We believe that we ask in accordance with your word and your will. Convict us of sin and righteousness. Convict us of coming judgment. 
We ask that by the preaching of your word, by the means of the preached word, that we would be pierced in our consciences. We pray that you would focus our minds on this text of scripture and that our hearts would be focused on Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Master, our King. We pray that you would hide this preacher, that we might hear the voice of Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. We have been studying in the book of Acts and most recently we've spent several weeks considering Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. We saw that Peter began by informing the crowd which had gathered. There was such a commotion and a crowd gathered. He informed them firstly what they were witnessing. They supposed that all this commotion, everyone speaking in different languages, that those people were drunk. But Peter points out in the beginning of his message, we didn't read this part today, but I'm just reminding you where we've been. He points out that this is the fulfilling of the Old Testament prophecy from the prophet Joel, that God would pour forth his spirit on his people. So Peter begins there, then he preaches to the crowd and he preaches in such a way that is straightforward and truthful and honestly he dealt with the problem that they had, the problem of that crowd and the greatest problem of all mankind and today, the greatest problem of each and every one of you was a problem with sin. The problem of sin. And Peter did not soft sell sin. He did not ignore sin. He did not dismiss sin. He dealt with sin boldly and biblically. We noted a few weeks ago, and perhaps you noticed as we read, the prominent use in this sermon of the pronoun you. Peter didn't just say, we have messed up. He said, you have sinned. You knew the truth about Jesus. It was attested to you by his miraculous works. You nailed him to the cross. You disobeyed the law of God by using lawless men to commit an atrocity. And you are prideful in thinking that you are guiltless. You are guilty. This Jesus, whom God has made both Lord and Christ, you crucified. This is the direct, bold, and biblical preaching that Peter brings to this crowd. We also noticed last time that there is no use of the word love in this sermon. We noticed that there's no use of the word love in this sermon or in the entire book of Acts. These people needed to hear about their sin. They needed to feel the weight of their own personal sin pressing down upon them. This is biblical preaching. It's the part of preaching that we call the law. Preaching the law of God. There's no mention of a savior. There's no mention of forgiveness nor redemption. Because people who, who don't have an illness are not interested in a cure. People who are not aware that they are sick will not take medicine. And all men who have not felt the burden of their own sin will not see the need for a burden bearer. I heard a preacher say one time that people cannot be saved until they are lost. They cannot get saved until they get lost. And he knew that all men are born in a state of lostness in need of Christ. What he was saying though is that men don't think of their sin. And if they don't come to a place of knowing and realizing their own sin and their lostness, then they will not realize their greatest need, their greatest need for a savior. This Burden of sin, this weight of sin is illustrated in Bunyan's great allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. No one in Christian's hometown felt the need to flee the city of destruction. Remember, he tried to get people to, to leave. They didn't feel the need. They didn't need to go anywhere. 
But when the evangelist came and preached and Christian realized his sin, he was carrying a huge, heavy burden on his back. He said the burden was made worse by reading the book that the evangelist gave him. So Christian had to go to the cross for his burden to be removed. I love Bunyan's allegory because it's not very hidden. It's pretty, it's pretty easy to figure out. Christian had to go to the cross for his burden to be removed. But Christian didn't set out on that journey until he felt the weight, until he felt the, the pressure of this burden weighing on him. In our day, many so-called preachers in many so-called churches never, ever mention sin. They talk about mistakes. We've all made mistakes. Nobody's perfect. No mention of sin. There's talk about forgiveness, but it's more about forgiving yourself of the mistakes that you've made, overcoming adversity. And then Jesus is presented in many of these places as only an example for us to follow. Listen, Jesus is an example for us to follow, but that's not primarily why he came. He came because we had a problem of sin and we needed a savior. And if sin is never preached, no one is ever weighed down with a burden. No one ever feels the guilt of sin. What we find here with Peter is not that kind of preaching. <laughs> the burden, the weight of sin is found in Peter's preaching and it is very common throughout the scripture that men must be faced with their sin. Listen to what the apostle Paul said in Romans 3. What then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. You see that imagery of being under sin, a burden weighing down. Later in that chapter, he says this. Now, we know what the law says. It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For the, by the law is the knowledge of sin. This imagery under the law. The words paint the picture of being trapped under a crushing weight. We become guilty under the law. That is to say that, that we're already guilty, but the law holds up a mirror for us to see our lawlessness to see our depravity to see our sin sick souls by the law we have knowledge of our own personal sin not people are willing to admit yeah everybody's a sinner but to say I am a sinner to be faced with my sin for you to be faced with your sin we need to feel this weight and this is why in Acts 2 Peter preaches the law this is why we still need preachers today who will preach the law of God. Sinner, hear the word of God today. You were born in a state of spiritual sin, already guilty and under the condemnation of the law of God. You were born in that condition, but since you were born, you have amened and doubled down on this sin and guilt every time you have acted out in your sin nature. Sinning to confirm the lostness, to increase your guilt before a perfect and holy God. Today, I call you to look at the mirror of God's law and to feel the burden, to know the weight of sin that is pressing down upon you. Lost person, you have no cause today to fear the devil.
The devil already has you. You have no cause to fear him. You have every reason to fear the holy and just righteous God who is perfectly angry with sin all the day long. Every minute of every day, he is wrathful and hates all those who do iniquity. It is God whom you should fear. Feel the burden of your sin. It is a devastating load that you are not able to bear into eternity. It will drag you down to the depths of hell. This is what Peter preached to this crowd. And up to this point in his preaching, there is no relief. I mean, look at it. There's no good news up to that point. No gospel. And in verse 37, we read these words. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. This, this language indicates something far more than a temporary discomfort, a temporary bad feeling. You know, people do that a lot. You point out that they're sin and they feel kind of bad for a minute and then they're over it. This is something different. This is not just being sorry that their sin was discovered. Sorry they got caught. This is more. It, it's being pierced all the way to the heart which indicates the deepest part of the soul. They were pierced. The idea is like being run through with a sword. Being pierced to the point of death. Whatever things used to matter. Before I felt this burden of sin. They don't matter anymore. This is all that matters. This piercing is the only thing they can think of. This is the only thing they can feel. They feel the weight of sin. Now contrast that with what we read in the, in the book of Jeremiah. Where Jeremiah speaks to the people and he says about the people, you're not even able to blush over your sin. You're not even embarrassed by your sin anymore. Contrast this with, with Paul as he preaches to King Agrippa. And King Agrippa says that he's almost persuaded, almost persuaded to become a Christian. That is not the work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Don't think in our day that we can convince people into the kingdom of God. Don't think that debates and apologist arguments can bring a person to Christ. They have their place. But that's not what we find in the Bible as a means for salvation. The psalmist said, my heart was embittered and I was pierced within. John tells us that the Holy Spirit came to convict of sin and of righteousness and of coming judgment. He came to convict. In Isaiah, when he saw the Lord, what did he say? I am unclean. Feeling the weight of his sin. Remember when Jesus preached from the boat, from Peter's boat. And Peter sat there and heard Jesus preach. And what did Peter say? Go away from me, Lord. I am undone. Feeling the weight of his sin. Remember in our study of Luke, there were two men, a rich man and a tax collector who went into the temple to pray. And the rich man stood and said, I thank God that I am not like other men. He did not feel the weight of his sinfulness. And that publican, that tax collector, that sinner, he bowed and would not even lift up his head and he beat his chest and said, be merciful to me, the sinner. In his mind, he's the only sinner. He's the primary sinner. He felt the weight of his sin. Friend, I beg you to see the burden of sin that is upon you. Sin will bring you to eternal death. 
This crowd, these men in Acts 2 felt the burden of their sin and they were pierced. And they asked in verse 37, Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? It's a good question. What shall we do? And, and I want to tell you what Peter tells them. The answer is the best answer. But you know what he doesn't tell them? How to, how to earn their salvation. How to live better. How to turn over a new leaf. How to quit doing bad stuff and start doing good. He doesn't tell them that. They ask, what must we do? Pierced to the heart. And it's then that Peter brings the gospel. The good news that there is salvation full and free in Jesus Christ. There is hope for the sin sick soul who turns to Jesus in repentant faith. On the cross of Calvary, when Jesus died, he bore the burden of sin for all those who would believe in him. He has endured the wrath that was due for your sin if you will believe in him repenting of your sin. When a sinner receives Christ, his sin burden is removed. He is no longer under the curse and the guilt of sin. He's no longer under the power of sin. And he will one day be in heaven where he will no longer be in the presence of sin. What a day that will be. Now if you look at the verse, you can quickly tell that the word faith is not here. That it's not faith, it, it doesn't say believe. It's not in the text. Peter doesn't tell them to believe. He doesn't tell them to have faith. Elsewhere, New Testament preachers, even Peter himself, will instruct sinners to believe. And there, there's no mention of repentance. Here we have repentance with no mention of faith. We need to understand the nature and the relationship between faith and repentance in order that we can see what's happening here, that we can understand this text. Faith in Jesus and repentance of sin, as we've said many times before, are two sides of the same coin. I'd like to illustrate very quickly with a, with a story. A brother purchased something from me not too long ago, and it was for the sum of $2. And he paid me with a $2 bill. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a $2 bill. $2 bills have been uh, special to me since I was a little bitty boy. When uh, an old man, I, I probably was six or seven, an old man named Curly Clark came to me at church and gave me a $2 bill and said, I want you to keep this. Don't spend it, keep it. And every time you see this, you will remember that I'm praying for you. I don't know that I would remember Curly Clark if not for that. I still have that $2 bill, Brother Curly is dead, long dead. But $2 bills are special. This man gave me a $2 bill as payment for a transaction. And on one side of the $2 bill is Thomas Jefferson. And on the other side of the $2 bill is Trumbull's depiction of the delivery of the Declaration of Independence to Congress. So we may ask, as this man paid me with a $2 bill, did I want Thomas Jefferson or did I want Trumbull's depiction of the Declaration of Independence? Somebody's probably thinking, that's a silly question. Somebody said, yes, yes, the answer is yes. Because it's silly to think of one without the other. If you have the Thomas Jefferson side and you on the other side, you don't have the Declaration of Independence, that's not a $2 bill. If you have the Declaration of Independence and on the other side, you don't have Thomas Jefferson, I don't know what that is, but whatever it is, it's a fake, it's a phony, it's not real. Faith without repentance, faith in Jesus Christ without repentance of sin, that is nonsensical. That, that makes no sense biblically. 
Repentance. Uh, faith without repentance is just empty emotion. And repentance without faith in Jesus is works. Saving faith is accompanied by repentance of sin. Godly repentance of sin comes with saving faith. If your faith is not repentant faith, it is not saving faith. If your repentance is not by faith, then it is not saving. Peter names here only repentance, but he knew and we know and they knew all who read the Bible can know faith in Jesus Christ and repentance of sin are inseparable. So in verse 38, Peter says to them, repent. The verse reads, repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This verse, Acts 2.38, has been a place of error and false teaching for so many. So it's important for us today to dig into this, even with short time, to dig into this and see as we consider this text, we must get this right so that we don't fall into a works-based religion. So that the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ don't get lost. First error, very quickly, some have come away from this and, and think that this instruction, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ is a formula for baptism. That is, the name of Jesus Christ must be invoked or spoken at baptism. Those hold that error. Uh, are primarily Jesus only or oneness Pentecostals. They believe that baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not a valid baptism. And there's much more error in this Jesus only and oneness movement that we don't have time to talk about today. It's important. Uh, modalism would be another name that it would go by. Um, but we don't have time for those things. But let's just say this. Saying in the name of is not a formula here. What is meant by uh, the scripture saying in the name of Jesus, it's not a magical phrase. You end every prayer within Jesus name and you automatically get whatever you pray. It's not a magic word and it's not a magic formula for baptism. If you say in the name of Jesus, then it's all good. When we say in the name of God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit, what we are saying is all inclusive of the person and the power and the authority and the will. It's not just the letters and the pronunciation. It's the person of God. And when he says here, be uh, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus be baptized in all that Jesus Christ is and stands for. Later, as we study Acts chapter four or five, I can't remember, the, the apostles are arrested for preaching. They're preaching the gospel and they are released and told no longer preach in that name. No longer preach in that name. Uh, you see, it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Don't preach in that name. Did they mean when they said, don't preach in that name, you go and preach and you preach the gospel, but don't call him Jesus. You can call him the Christ. You can call him Messiah. You can call him the son of God, but don't call. Him. Is that what they meant? No, they meant don't preach Jesus. Don't preach his name. Don't preach his person. Don't preach his works. Don't preach his death. Don't preach his resurrection. Don't preach Jesus. And they said it by saying in the name of Jesus. Well, here when Peter says repent and be baptized, many of them may have been baptized. They may have been baptized a water ritual, a water ceremony into Judaism. They may have been baptized with a water ceremony into some false religion. Peter is saying, no, that's not good enough. You must be baptized in the name of that is under the authority of by the will of and in the power and person of Jesus Christ. You must be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's not a formula. That's the first error. That's the easier one. 
The second error which people get by mishandling this verse is from Peter's instruction. Repent each one of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sin. And some have said that this clearly indicates that baptism is necessary. It is a necessary act in, the order, in order for a person to be saved. It's part of salvation. You must be baptized. Some say that. And if this were the only verse that we ever read, and if we didn't think too hard about it, then we might be pulled away by this type of thinking that, oh, of course, baptism here is necessary. But we need to see here that Peter is not making baptism a necessary component of salvation. What is he doing? First, we should consider the fuller text of Acts and the fuller text of the New Testament. Later, Paul in the book of Acts is asked almost the same question by the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? What did these people say? What must we do? What must I do to be saved? Paul is asked by the Philippian jailer and Paul says this in Acts 16. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no mention of repentance, but faith is repentant faith. And there's no mention of baptism. What happened? Did Paul get it wrong? Did Paul deliver only half the story to the Philippian jailer? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, I forgot to tell him about the other necessary important part. No. Consider Mark's gospel, chapter 16, where we read this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's a lot here. Calling on the name of the Lord indicates repentant faith. And calling on the name of the Lord is not just saying his name. It's all that he is. And all who, by repentant faith, call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did we get it wrong in Mark? Is only half the story there in Mark? There's no mention of baptism. Again, consider Ephesians chapter 2, which clearly states it is by grace that you are saved through faith. Explicitly stated, it is not of works. And baptism is a, is a work. It's an act. Baptism is a good work. Let me say this. I'm not dissing on baptism. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. And by the way, that's exactly what Peter is saying here. We'll see that in a moment. But we understand if we look at the rest of Scripture and even the rest of Acts, that we should be baptized, obeying the command of Jesus, but we are not saved by baptism. That's called baptismal regeneration, and we are not saved by being baptized. So we come to this verse, Acts 2.38, where Peter says, repent and be baptized for forgiveness of sin. How are we to read this? If we read it like baptism saves us, then it, it conflicts with the rest of the Bible. And we know with the analogy of faith, the analogy of scripture, it cannot be a conflict. So how can we read this? Is there a way to read this verse so that it does not conflict, so that it fits with the rest of Scripture. And we find right away the understanding of this verse, the right understanding of this verse is found in the word for, F-O-R. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. I gotta be quick. I have a long example that I would love to share with all of you at some point. It's about cows. <laughs> but we're going to skip that. My wife told me it was too long when you put it in there. Let me give you, let me give you this example. I'm going to go to, I, I'm going to give you two statements. I'm going to go to a rock concert for a headache. What does that mean to us? Well, it certainly doesn't mean I have a headache and I'm going to go there to help it. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. It means I'm going to go to this rock concert. It's going to be loud and I'm going to acquire a new headache. I'm going to go get it. I'm going to a rock concert for. For means I'm going to acquire something. Now, after that, I come home and I say, I'm going to take two Tylenol for my headache. 
I'm going to take two Tylenol for my headache. Same word, four. I take two Tylenol for my headache. But now four doesn't mean you don't take two Tylenol in order to acquire, in order to obtain, in order to uh, uh, possess a headache. You take two Tylenol because you already got a headache. You already got it. Therefore, you should take two Tylenol. Peter comes here and he says, repent and be baptized for remission of sin. If we say for means in order to obtain, in order to acquire, in order that you can be saved, that doesn't fit scripture. But if he says here, repent and be baptized for Forgiveness of sin because you already have it because by faith you have believed in Jesus and you are saved now be baptized for that reason Doesn't that make sense and it fits with scripture and that is what he's saying here Peter cannot in his sermon be saying that you must be baptized in order to be saved that again is biblical nonsense You must be baptized for in light of the fact of forgiveness of sin. Be baptized for forgiveness of sin. Be baptized in light of the fact that you have received forgiveness of sin. These men heard the law of God preached. They felt the weight, the burden of sin. They were pierced in their conscience to the heart. Then Peter gives them the gospel. And what does he do? He points them to the Savior. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. And then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. Continuing verse 39 says, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off and as many as the Lord will call to himself. There's several things in here that we need to take note of. Peter has said that they were witnessing the promised sending, the promised pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And now he says the promise is for you and for your children. The promise is not only for those who were there that day. The promise is for you and for your children. And this is not to indicate that their children could bypass repentant faith. This is not to indicate that, well, if mom and dad are saved, then the kids are saved. That's not the way that works. That's not the way it works. If your mom and dad are Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian. Being born in a Christian home does not make you a Christian any more than being born in a barn makes you a cow or being born in a garage makes you a car. Being born in a Christian home is a blessing from the Lord, but you need to repent and you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. This is not to say that their children could bypass repentant faith, but that the salvation that was available to those who would repent and believe was also available to their children who would repent and believe. Those who received his word were baptized. It says this in verse 42. This demonstrates that he is not saying here, you receive the Holy Spirit and your children are automatically in. If it was, we would expect verse 42 to say, those who received his word along with their children, along with their infants, along with all who lived in their homes were baptized. And it doesn't say that. It says those who received his word. And if you have heard anyone tell you there's household baptisms in the New Testament, you look at the text and you read it for yourself and you will find this. There is no baptism in the New Testament text of Scripture that does not include hearing the Word of God and believing the Word of God. If you need help with that, I would be glad. I would love to help you with that. Uh, come and, and talk to me about it and I'll help you see what the Scripture says about that. Those who received His Word were baptized. Baptized. This tells us that only proper candidates for baptism are those who receive the word of God with repentant faith. Peter mentions that this promise is for you and for your children and those who are far off. As I look out, I don't know every one of you, but I think this those who are far off includes most of us, if not every one of us in this room. 
Those who are far off are the Gentiles. I mean, God's, God has given his law. God has given his promises to national Israel through the old covenant. Gentiles didn't have God's law. Gentiles didn't have God's promises. We were far off. But now, in the new covenant, this promise of the Holy Spirit, this promise of salvation is for you and your children and Gentiles who are far off. It's for you too. If you will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. We have been far off, but we are in Jesus Christ brought near. Then it says to as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. This is just a hint at a doctrine that is taught in greater detail elsewhere in scripture. That when sinners come to Jesus Christ, it is in response to his call. It is a response to the call of the Father. <laughs> Those whom he effectually calls will come to him in repentant faith. The calling brings spiritual life we call regeneration and produces that repentant faith in the sinner. And then this new creation in Christ follows him. Verse 40, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. This is how I'm feeling today. With many other words, I want to exhort you. Be saved from this perverse generation. And I know that I have already used many words. But we should also know this, that my words, few words, many words, or very many words, my words are not powerful to save. I cannot convince you into the kingdom of God. I cannot argue into repentant faith. But if you today have heard the voice of God, have heard the spirit of God, if you have been convicted, pierced to the heart because of your sin, if you feel the burden that you are carrying on your back, the burden of sin, let me point you to Jesus Christ. Let me point you to the cross of Calvary. Turn to him in faith, repenting of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you can be saved today. And you who have believed in Jesus, you have come by faith, repenting. You should obey the command of Jesus to be baptized. I would encourage you, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, please come and speak to me or come and speak to Pastor Brent. We would encourage you to come to us and speak to us about your faith in Christ and your desire to be baptized in the Lord, obeying his command to do so. If you were sprinkled, if you had a water ceremony as a baby, even if you went through the baptismal waters, some are like, well, y'all don't believe in infant baptism, but I was baptized as a grown person. I just wasn't saved yet. That's still not baptism. You need to be scripturally baptized, and we would love the opportunity to speak to you about that. If you're here, catch me or Pastor Brent, pull us aside, and we would love to talk to you about that. If you're online, live streaming, uh, or downloading this, then we'd love to uh, help you with these things. You can go to our website and send us a message through the contact page there. Christians, look now at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This, this is what we call a body of believers, a visible church. They believed, they were baptized, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There, there are certainly aspects of our walk as Christians that is personal and private. But for the most part, for the most part, we walk as a body. 
We walk as a covenant community of believers, a covenant body in the body in which God has placed us. This means church membership, and, and some of you need to seek church membership. This also means church membership. Some people get church membership and then they quit. This continually devoting themselves is church membership and then church participation and involvement. That may be more difficult sometimes than it is at others, especially now with the way the world is. Fellowship is tough. Fellowship is difficult. Isn't it good when we can catch little bits of fellowship here and there? We, Even though it is difficult, we need to be devoting ourselves. They devoted themselves, it says here, to the apostles' teaching. For us, that means the word of God. The reading, but especially the preaching of the word of God. This means being present for the preached word. This means showing up. Being present for the preached word. This means being good hearers. This means not only being hearers, but being doers. This means then taking the preached word that we have heard into our fellowship one with another. And it becomes part of who we are and how we communicate and how we interact with one another. It says they devoted themselves to fellowship. How do we do that? We do the one another's of scripture. Uh, we can't name them all. I think there's somebody counted like 150. But just a few. Love one another. Bear one another's burden. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. Rejoice with one another. Confess our sins to one another. That's a tough one. Holding one another accountable. Encouraging one another. This is living in a community of faith. The visible church. Doing the one another's. Well, here's what I'm saying. Fellowship is more than punching cookies. Fellowship, real biblical fellowship, is not always easy, but it's what Christians do. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, it says they devoted themselves to prayer, but look, it also says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And this is not just eating together. This is specifically indicating the observance of the Lord's Supper. That's what's in view here. The observance of the Lord's Supper is not to be done alone. It's not because it wasn't given to individual Christians. It's not to be done in families because the ordinance of the Lord's table is not a family ordinance. It's not to be done in small groups. It's to be done with the congregation, the body, the church. This is for the visible church. The Lord's table is for the church. Let me say this, the Lord's table is not for everyone. This is very important. The Lord's table is not for everyone. It is only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sins, and then after that, been baptized scripturally. And scriptural baptism is by immersion. The Bible is very clear that there is no benefit to receiving the elements of the Lord's table to those who come unworthily. To those who are not fit to come to the table, there is no benefit. As a matter of fact, there is detriment, there is danger Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, Paul says, many among you are weak and sick and a number have died. We don't just say this because we want to keep these terrible tasting crackers to ourselves. But that's not the reason here. It's because this is weighty. This is serious. And the Bible tells us that this is, this is a cause. Those taking unworthily is a cause for weakness and sickness and death. And condemnation becoming guilty 
blood of Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that we ask you, as the elements are passed in just a moment, if you are not saved, please don't take the elements. If you have not been baptized since your salvation, please don't take the elements. And if you have been excluded from the table at this church or another church, sometimes that's called excommunication. If you have been excluded from the table for any reason, we would ask that you abstain this morning. Again, Pastor Brent and I would love to speak to you individually about these things. But today, for your own safety, please just let the elements pass by you without partaking. I would say that the elders and the deacons would be glad to speak to you about the table and clarify any questions that you may have. For those of you who are here, who are believers in Jesus Christ, who have been scripturally baptized, and you are in good relationship with the church of which you are a member, we would welcome you to participate this morning. As the elements are passed, uh, please take a packet for, for this time and this current situation of our world, we're using a prepared packet. Please take the packet. You might wanna go ahead and get started on getting that thing open, but please hold the elements and we will receive them. We'll partake together after we pray. At this time, I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward for the distribution of the elements of the Lord's table. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on us now. Apply the word which we have heard to our hearts. We pray that you would save sinners, convict us of sin, grant true repentance, sanctify your people, edify your church, we pray in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom's sake. Amen.